No hobgoblins nor foul fiends can prevent us from reading God's word this morning. Let's turn to Luke chapter 17, and uh, we'll read from verse 20 to verse 37. Page 1056. And now we come to the Lord Jesus himself speaking to his, uh, well, starting with the Pharisees, but then speaking also to the disciples. Let's hear the word of God. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here, or do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Friends, brothers and sisters, there's so much I could preach on from this passage. Any of these verses... But I'm drawn this morning, and I draw you this morning, to verse 32. One of the shortest verses in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife. There are only two verses which are shorter than that. One of them is very well known, and you're saying it even as I uh, mention it. Jesus wept. The other equally short verse, anyone know what it is?
Oh, in the Greek, yeah, <laughs> very good, yeah, in the Greek and in the ESV. <laughs> um, the shortest, the joint shortest is rejoice always. Second Thessalonians, verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, rejoice always. Jesus wept. But here is one of the shortest verses in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife. And I want to deal with it. It's kind of tailor-made for preaching on. My first point will be remember Lot's wife. My second point will be remember Lot's wife. And my last point will be remember Lot's wife. Very good. So each of the three words will be the three points. Remember Lot's wife. It's good to remember things, isn't it? It's good to remember your PIN number and not forget it. It's good to remember to bring your bank card with you when you go to a supermarket in the first place and not have to phone someone to bring it to you. It's good to remember things for revision when you're doing exams. It's good to remember people's birthdays. It's good to remember appointments. Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. And uh, those two words, Lot's wife, are, are a shorthand for something that the disciples would have understood straight away. We do similar things today. Uh, we use shorthand to stand for something that is quite substantial. And we know what it means. We might say, remember Grenfell Tower. And you all know what Grenfell Tower was and what happened at Grenfell Tower two years ago. Or we might say, looking further back, remember 9-11. Or we might say, even further back, remember Dunblane. Remember Chernobyl. Remember the Brixton riots, or whatever it might be. Lot's wife is a shorthand way of saying that Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt as she fled from Sodom, as it was being destroyed by the Lord, but she looked back, turned back, and became a pillar of salt. More about that later on. But our Bibles lend themselves to these short two- or three-word pithy references. Most of us here know about Noah's Ark, Daniel in the lion's den, Jonah and the whale. You know what I'm talking about, most of you. Do you recognize others? A little bit less famous, perhaps. Aaron's rod, the root of Jesse, the widow's might, these shorthand for well-known Bible stories, which it is a blessing if we know what they're talking about. If we know our Bibles, we are strengthened and equipped to live wisely and well in this life. And these references, they strike a chord with us. Widow's might, the woman who was poor but gave her little penny or whatever it was, and gave far, far more out of her poverty than the rich people gave out of their riches. Well, we've read the narrative. We've read the narrative in Genesis chapter 19. Remember it, says Jesus. 
God told Abraham he was going to destroy these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. And then we have Abraham alone with the Lord, begging him, praying to him, pleading with him, almost bargaining with him. What if there are 50 righteous people in that city? Lord, will you still destroy the city if there are 50 righteous people there? And the Lord says, no, I won't. I won't destroy it if they're found there. Abraham starts to think, okay, uh, 45? No, even 45, I won't destroy it. And he goes down and down and down and down, doesn't he? 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. I will not destroy this city if I find only 10 righteous people there. The God of all the earth does what is just. He does not sweep away his own righteous people with the wicked. But we then see, don't we, a little later on, just how wicked that city of Sodom is. And I must speak with caution this morning. This is a family service, a family congregation. But the great wickedness of the men of Sodom is something terrible for what they did and wanted to do with these men and even what Lot would have allowed them to do with his own daughters. But the angels who looked like men were the ones who then saved Lot and his family from the men of Sodom. They struck them with blindness and they then urged Lot to gather his family and leave that city quickly. But we read that Lot and his family lingered until really they were practically shoved out of the door and dragged out of that city away from Sodom and Gomorrah. And while they were going, and they'd gone some way the next morning, down came the sulfur and the fire and the destruction from God. And Lot kept on going, but his wife looked back. His wife turned round and looked back. And she became a pillar of salt whether by supernatural means or indeed by natural volcanic means, we do not know. It does not matter very much. But she was destroyed with the city. Let me make another point while I'm thinking about remember Lot's wife. Something that needs to be said. Our Lord Jesus Christ believed and trusted and used the whole Bible without embarrassment. Jesus was very happy to speak of Lot and of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and their destruction as historical people and historical events. There was with Jesus, as with Paul and Peter and the other disciples, there was no embarrassment, no awkwardness, no shame in speaking about Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah and Lot and Jonah and the great whale, as well as many other Old Testament characters and narratives that people have now been saying for some centuries that these stories are obviously myths and are very far-fetched and are the stories of ignorant, untaught people living back in times of uh, 
folklore and fairies and hobgoblins and things like that. We should be grateful that Jesus took deliberately all the bits of the Old Testament that people today might, many people today who say they're Christians might say, oh, well, surely nobody believes that anymore. Really? You believe that Jonah was in the belly of a whale? You believe that Aaron's rod uh, by itself budded and uh, sent out flowers and all these sorts of things? You really believe that the Red Sea parted and people walked across dry land and it came back and covered the Egyptians? Well, if people say that they don't believe these things, they're saying that they are wiser than the Lord Jesus Christ himself because he took these things as read. But what is the main point of this text? Well, we read from the whole of Luke 17, verses 20 to 37. And it's a passage about the coming judgment. The people of Israel that Jesus was among and addressing were a people who, 40 years from then, would experience a terrible judgment in the destruction of Jerusalem and of their temple with great suffering, though many would escape. But Jesus, in a sense, is speaking even over and above and beyond that to us here this morning, who are not living in Jerusalem, not living in Israel, but still living in God's world, and saying, today, today, in 2019, August the 11th, this city, and I don't mean London, though I could mean London, but I mean the city of the world, is a city of destruction. A city doomed to destruction, like Sodom, because of sin. And you need to flee from that sin and from that wrath and go with the Lord. Because if we do not, we will come to judgment. And it will be a terrible judgment, an eternal judgment, a hellish judgment, though a righteous judgment. Brothers and sisters, remember Lot's wife. Remember. Never forget these great lessons from the Bible. Lot's wife. Let's now come to Lot himself. Because if his wife is a warning, so too is Lot. Now, it's a fascinating fact that in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter in his second letter, gives a verdict on Lot, and he calls him a righteous man. That is the Bible's final verdict on him. And indeed, we must say that the reason that the Lord brought Lot out of Sodom is that he was keeping his pledge to Abraham that he would not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Lot by grace, is counted righteous. All by the grace of God. But we read of what the Apostle Peter says of Lot and his character, something that we should take on board, because in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, this is what we read. We read that Lot, while he lived in Sodom, was greatly distressed 
by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Lot's inner character and core, his his inner man, that feared the Lord to some measure, looked around Sodom, and he was tormented and grieved and upset. That's putting it too mildly. He was churned up inside with horror at what he saw in that wicked, depraved, sexually perverse city. But Lot, like every righteous person in the Bible, apart from one, our Lord himself, had feet of clay, and he made mistakes. Where did Lot go wrong? Well, we can follow Lot's story in Genesis, and we can see that Lot was too prepared to compromise with this ungodly world. Lot was not fearful enough of the effects of sin on him nor his family. He was too blasé about it all. He didn't stop and think about what his actions might result in. You remember that Abraham and Lot were traveling into the land. They'd come from Haran, right up in Mesopotamia and above that part of the world. And they'd come down into the land of Canaan together. Uncle Abraham and nephew Lot. And then they began to quarrel. Uh, their various herdsmen and men began to quarrel. And Abraham said, this won't do. We, we can't carry on together. Listen, you choose. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. And Lot chose for himself. The green, lush, fertile valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. But we're told even then that the men of Sodom were wicked great sinners against the Lord. And Lot did not seem to let that consideration enter his mind. He chose to live too near to sin. He cozied up to sin. By the time we get to chapter 14 of Genesis, Lot has taken up residence in Sodom. And here in chapter 19 of Genesis, he is living in a house in the middle of of Sodom, and he's even at the gates of the city when these angels arrive. Lot has parked himself in Sodom. It doesn't say that Lot took part in the wickedness of Sodom, but Lot never made a decision to leave Sodom until he had to. He may have felt uneasy living there. He may have thought, not a great place for me, uh, nor my wife. And and out of interest, where did he get his wife from? There's no mention of a wife in chapter 13. She seems to have been uh, a woman who comes from Sodom itself. But he never seemed to think until it came to the crunch, it's not right or healthy or helpful for me nor my wife nor my daughters to be living in this sinful place. Lot is the classic picture of a compromised believer. 
By God's grace, he's counted a righteous man. Oh, thank God that he saves compromised believers ultimately. Or else none of us would have any hope, would we? We are all more or less compromised with sin in this world. But to compromise with sin is a great danger that we should flee from. He's too much at home in Sodom. One of the great Christian classics ever written on this subject is J.C. Ryle's Holiness. And he has a whole chapter there about Lot. And this is what he says by way of application. Hear these words of Bishop J.C. Ryle, writing around about 1870 or 1880. Make a wrong choice, an unscriptural choice in life. Settle yourself down unnecessarily in the midst of worldly people. And I know no surer way to damage your own spirituality and to go backward about your eternal concerns. This is the way to make the pulse of your soul beat feebly and languidly. This is the way to make the edge of your feeling about sin become blunt and dull. This is the way to dim the eyes of your spiritual discernment till you can scarcely distinguish good from evil and stumble as you walk. You imagine, Lot, early months, early years in Sodom. This is wicked. This is terrible. This is awful. This is so immoral, what they're doing. It's shocking. But time goes by, and he starts to think, well, maybe, maybe it's not so bad after all. Maybe it's normal. I've got to know these people. They're, they're, they're not so bad. I have a living here. I have a home here after all. I, I'm looking for a wife here and a family here. I, I mustn't be too judgmental about these people. Maybe they're uh, not so bad. And little by little, Lot starts to think, you know, this is, this is okay. This is, this is fine. I can, I can cope here. I haven't got a problem with this. That's what people say, isn't it? I don't have a problem with this. Well, what if God has a problem with something and he wants you to know that it's a problem? And it's a problem with the world you live in and the ease with which you accept sin and excuse sin and say, oh, it's not really sin after all, is it? Let me ask one or two questions of each of us. Do you prefer the company of unbelievers, of non-Christians, to the company of Christians? I mean, I'm asking you really deep down. Where would you rather be? In a room surrounded by non-Christians who have no interest in the Lord, no desire to do what the Lord wants? Or would you rather be in a room full of believers who love the Lord and encourage you to serve the Lord as well? What would you prefer? It's a searching question, isn't it? What is your purpose in making friends who are not Christians? Is it that you need them for yourself and you want to be a bit like them and you're drawn to them because of what they're like? Or is it that really you, you would love them to come to know the Lord in time? And that's what moves you. That's another searching question. Are you and I too comfortable with language, 
jokes, images, associations, blasphemy, whatever it might be. And we start to become used to these things. We start to accept these things. We find ourselves saying, it's not so bad after all. Lot is a clear picture of a backslidden believer. And in the end, as we've already said, Lot is spared, Lot is counted righteous. But his compromise with sin brought him great, great distress. And his family. And his family. We'll come to his wife in a moment, but remember his daughters. They all drank in the morals of Sodom. Lot's daughters were polluted by Sodom. We haven't read on to the end of chapter 19, but we see there the tragic and sordid end of the narrative of Lot and his daughters because they had lived their lives in this city of Sodom. Friends, you know, there are times, aren't there, where we have no choice but to live in and among this world. We, we have to live in the world. We can't escape from this world. We can't shut ourselves out from the world. But there are times, aren't there, when we can responsibly choose not to be influenced by the world, by where we go and who we're with and what we read and what we watch and what we think about. Because the Lord is saving for himself a people who are zealous for righteousness and for good works. You or I might be like Lot, a believer by God's grace, saved by God's grace, forgiven for eternity by God's grace, but we might at the same time injure ourselves, harm ourselves, pierce ourselves, and our loved ones, and our fellow believers in Christ, with many sorrows, because we have toyed with the sin that is all around us, and said, it really isn't all that bad, whatever it might be. Remember Lot. Remember Lot. Don't become like Lot. Ask yourself, ask a loved one, am I becoming like Lot? And then remember Lot's wife. The Apostle Peter seems to have a particular interest in Lot and his wife. He says in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 18, these words, these striking words. If the righteous is scarcely saved, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And surely when Peter wrote these words, he had Lot and his wife in mind. The righteous are scarcely saved. Lot was just about saved. He was saved, but only by the skin of his teeth, wasn't he? He lingered. He didn't want to go. Oh, must I go? Do I have to leave now? And then do I have to go very far? Do I have to go all the way to the hills? I just want to go to the near city. It's not far. It's only a small city, Lord. Please let me go there. How patient God is with Lot. How, how almost indulgent he is and says, that's fine. You can just go that far and no further. I'll save you. Because God is gracious. God saves Lot. 
despite Lot almost being caught up in the destruction because he, he lingers, he hangs around, says, oh, I don't want to go. I like it here too much. My family's here. My sons-in-law, they belong to Sodom. They can't go with me, and they're not coming with me anyway. The daughters are getting married to them. It's not easy. It's not convenient. He was scarcely saved. But his wife perished. She became a pillar of salt. When I was a small boy who heard about this story, I thought, <laughs> as small boys do, and children do, a pillar of salt was basically a little salt cellar on a table, you know, like salt that you sprinkle on your food. I thought, oh, she turned into a little jar of salt. And it doesn't mean that. It doesn't need to be a miracle, actually. We just know that the Lord, by his might and power, in some great eruption of volcanic, explosive power and judgment, rained down fire and sulfur on that city to destroy it. And that Lot's wife, who was really holding Lot back, who was the main reason why Lot lingered, not because she was just getting stuff ready and wanted to make sure everything was sorted out in the home and she'd cancelled the... I don't know, the milkman and the hairdresser and all those sorts of things. No, no, she wanted to stay in Sodom. She was her home. She was torn away against her desire from Sodom. And that's why when she hears the noise and the thunder and the lightning and the sulfur and the fire, she looks round and she even, as it were, goes back in the direction of Sodom for a few seconds. But she's then caught up in it all. And she stands there forever, a pillar of salt, a monument to the destruction of God. And you may say, well, that's all a bit severe, isn't it? What had she done wrong? Why was she judged so severely for simply turning around and looking back at her home? Oh, God, be fair, be reasonable, this poor woman. No. Her looking back was a symptom of the state of her heart. She never wanted to leave. She followed her husband only because she was dragged with him against her will and because these angels were dragging him. And he went, but she didn't want to go because her heart was still in Sodom. There's a difference between Lot and his wife, you see. Ultimately, Lot, for all his delaying, believed what the angels were saying. He ran, he moved, he went. He heard the angel saying to him, escape for your life. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Yes, Lot was slow to move. Yes, Lot was distracted. But Lot did move. Lot didn't look back. Lot obeyed. But his wife didn't. She turned back. Lot's wife is a picture of someone whose Christian faith may look real on the outside to most human observers. But when a day of testing or reckoning comes, it proves to be an empty charade and a sham. She turns up with Lot. She's Mrs. Lot. She comes to church with him. She's there at the prayer meeting with him. 
She says amen when he prays. She's a member of the church, perhaps. She's even gone through baptism, and she takes the Lord's Supper, and she says that she's a believer. But she isn't ultimately, deep down, a believer at all. Her heart is not in this. Her heart is far from the Lord. No real desire. No spiritual longing to say, I believe in the Lord, I trust in the Lord, I follow the Lord myself. When her heart is tested, she is found to be false. Are you like Lot's wife this morning, any of you? I remember some years back talking to another minister about this whole subject. And we were saying whenever the gospel is preached, The minister should never be tempted to say something like this. Well, I know the whole congregation are Christians. I know that everyone here is a believer. I don't need to urge them to make sure of their salvation. I know they're all Christians. They don't need to be reminded that Jesus died and they need to come to Jesus and be saved. They already know that. We don't need to be preaching that message again and again. They'll get tired of that. That is not the case at all. It needs to be sounded. It needs to be said. It needs to be urged. It needs to be applied. Doesn't the Apostle Paul himself say that he preaches the gospel to himself? He keeps his body under subjection. He makes sure that he applies the word of God to himself in case he himself should be disqualified. Let me ask you, is your Christianity something real? What are you like when you're all alone? At home, in your room, walking by yourself? Are you thinking to yourself, oh, I can get away from all that now? Get away from pretending to be a Christian and I can just be myself. I don't really believe all that, do I? Nah. Lot's wife, a pillar of salt. Nah. Jesus Christ dying for sinners 2,000 years ago, rising again? No. Is that what you really, really think deep down? Are you really a Christian? Do you really know what it is to to know God, to long for God, to, to pray to God, to receive his word? Do you know the reality of grace? Do you have a hunger and a desire to grow in grace and knowledge and holiness? Remember Lot's wife. She was going through the motions running from Sodom. She didn't want to be leaving Sodom at all. She had no inner desire to leave that place and to pursue after God. Her worldly and unspiritual heart revealed itself as she turned around and said, That's my home. That really is my home. I wish I were back there. Is that you? You remember the people of Israel leaving Egypt in the wilderness? And they were just the same, weren't they? They'd been out of the land of Egypt for months and months. But they start to complain and they start to say, oh, we wish we could go back to Egypt. We miss the food. We miss everything that was our home. All we have is this manna and this Moses and these commandments and this place called Canaan we've got to go to. We'd rather not go to Canaan. We wish we could go back to Egypt. Their hearts were not in following the Lord, apart from only a few faithful ones, you remember, who spied out the land and said, yes, the Lord can enable us to take that land and we can go there, for God is with us. Now, are you of that spirit this morning? 
I ask you, are you of that spirit that says, I am following the Lord. He is my Lord and my God. I am fleeing from the city of destruction. This world is not my home. It's that empty bucket. It won't hold anything ultimately. It's cracked and it's leaking. But I have an inheritance and I have a savior. And he is in me and I am in him. And we are joined to one another. And he is my heavenly husband and bridegroom. And I am his and he is mine. Is that your attitude this morning? This afternoon it is now. Because a greater day of judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. A greater day of judgment than the city of Jerusalem being destroyed. Is lying ahead for us all. Jesus talks about two people. They're lying in the same bed. Husband and wife. Surely he's thinking of Mr. and Mrs. Lot, isn't he, when he says that? I think so. And one will be taken. One will be with the Lord. When the Lord comes, one will be with the Lord forever. The other one will be with the goats on the left-hand side. And we'll hear those doom-laden, horrible words, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this one the Lord will say, come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of this world, the righteous and the wicked. And I say to you again, how can you be righteous? How can you and I be righteous? Do we look inside ourselves for what within us lies, as the old medievals used to say? Oh, I can find some some virtue inside me. I can work up some goodness. I can be a good man. I can be a good woman. I can be a good person. I can earn heaven. I can find favor by being good. No, you can't. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short. There is none righteous. But there is one righteous, isn't there? And that's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. How can you and I be found righteous? By clinging to him. By holding to him. By saying, I have no righteousness of my own, but I have it in Christ. By faith in him alone, I hear his word. I listen, I believe, I follow, I trust. He's the Lord and he's the Savior and I must follow him. You might be the husband or the wife or the son or the daughter of a believer whom the Lord has declared to be righteous. And on the day of judgment, that loved one may be found with the Lord, clothed in white, singing hallelujahs to the Lord forever and ever. But what about you? It doesn't matter where your nearest and dearest is. It matters, first of all, where you are. I'm reminded inevitably of what they say when you're about to take off in an airplane. Make sure your own oxygen mask is fitted in the event of an emergency 
before you then look to the person sitting on your side that their oxygen mask is fitted. That's not being selfish. That's being wise. Make sure that you yourself are saved, that you're following the Lord Jesus Christ. What will it be like with you on the day of judgment? Will you be saved or will you perish? Remember Lot's wife. Let's pray together. O Lord, the righteous, we read, are scarcely saved. That is not because you are unable to save us, O Lord. It is because we in ourselves are so stubborn and sinful and worldly and at home in the flesh and in the world that we do not run after you with the joy and eagerness that we we would, O Lord. And as we see with Lot, his salvation was in no way due to his own decision or righteousness or, or speed or wisdom or anything of that kind, but it was all by grace that he was saved. And so it is with us, O Lord. Lord, if you marked our transgressions, which of us would stand? But you came, Lord Jesus Christ, you came the only salvation possible, the only name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the pure, spotless, and sinless Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world to be that only sacrifice, that only salvation for lost and needy sinners like us. O Lord, draw your people to yourself, if there are souls here who are still far from you, bring them in, Lord. Draw them in as the fisher draws in the fish, as, O oh Lord, the shepherd summons the sheep, goes and finds the lost one at great cost to himself to bring it back rejoicing. Bring back the lost sheep that there may be rejoicing in heaven today. We ask in the name of the good shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.